Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we are talking with individuals whose jobs touch on aspects of LGBTQ life. Um, For this episode, which is the final episode of the season, we spoke with Josh Block. Uh, Block is uh, an ACLU attorney, um, specifically with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project. Uh, He talks to us about how he came to work on that project and leads us through the experience of actually working on one of these cases, the feelings that are associated with it, the kind of complex ways that he has to think about writing legal briefs, even what it's like uh, in some cases to, to actually argue a case. Then in a Slate Plus Extra, Block talks about some of uh, the LGBT, specifically civil rights struggles that he thinks are going to be coming down the legal pipeline uh, in the next few years. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? I'm Josh Block, and I am a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project. So what is that uh, project? What sort of legal action are you pursuing through the LGBT and HIV project at the ACLU? So, you know, the ACLU uh, is a... uh, enormous organization dedicated to protecting uh, the civil liberties and constitutional rights of people across a whole range of issues. And I'm privileged to be working in a subgroup within that where we're focused particularly on ensuring the uh, dignity and equal treatment of people. Uh, people who are uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, um, or any other sexual orientation or gender identity, and um, in addition, uh, people living with HIV. Cool. Uh, how did you How did you end up working on that kind of area of legal activity in the first place? You know, that, that's a good question because I, you know, I definitely um, knew people in a college or law school that. You know, had as their you know vision of themselves in the future being um, uh, professional gays, and <laughs> I never, um, I never uh, really. Uh, if you asked me, you know, uh, gosh, I I was going to have to say how many years ago that was. And <laughs> you, I, you don't I have just, to say how many years. No, ago. I'm a little bit. That's depressing uh, <laughs> now. But if you asked me back then uh, whether I would uh, be there, I. Um, you know, I would have said, like, I want to be, you know, a gay professional, not a professional gay, um, where I... I the, the distinction being working not just on gay issues, right? Yeah, but also have, you know, feeling like you don't want your... Uh, having a firm distinction between your personal identity and your professional life um, sure. and not feeling like um, they were 
what you were bringing to the table professionally um, uh, involved your sexual orientation as being mm-hmm. a, a big uh, factor. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there are plenty of people, um, you know, who um, uh, work in uh, the movement uh, protecting LGBT folks who uh, are uh, don't identify as LGBT themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not as though you can be a professional gay without actually being a gay professional. Sure, it turns out um, professional ally maybe. Yes, yes, um, but you know what what actually happened was I always sort of hoped I'd end up uh, at the ACLU or a similar organization. And you're always told you never know when those spots are going to open up. It's sort of like um, winning the lottery. And I had, you know, been sort of monitoring the job openings at the ACLU really um, very closely. This when um, you were still in law school, or, or oh no, this is at you know after I graduated, I went to a law firm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, paid off some debts. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know the law firm I chose um, was. Uh, Jenner and Block, no relation to me, but, um, you know, when I was deciding where to go for my summer associate year, um, that was, uh, I was making that decision right after Lawrence versus Texas uh, Mm. was decided. And Jenner Jenner and Block was the law firm that did it. And I, you know, remember interviewing with, you know, Paul Smith and Bill Hohengarten and other folks that were key parts of that team. And um, that is, you know, a huge reason why I went to that law firm in the first mm-hmm. place. Uh, but, you know, but it's a law firm and I wanted to um, uh, do um, something that I found uh, meaningful 100% of the time instead of just on pro bono cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was the, it was the, uh, the Bush years, uh, there was a hiring freeze uh, after uh, the the economy tanked, and I was sort of waiting for the next job opening to um, to come. And I was lucky enough that it was this one. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the job opening, and I realized that I was <laughs> simply by being a person who was interested um, in the in the world of legal LGBT issues, I actually um, ended up uh, being, you know, more knowledgeable and qualified than I uh, sort of would have thought I would be. And it it sort of, um, it was like a a match that, you know, just sort of fell into my lap. And I didn't realize what a great fit it was for me until um, I, I had it. But, you know, I could have ended up in a, you know, the Reproductive Freedom Project, sure, um, yeah. just as easily. Although I probably would have then ended up moving over to uh, LGBT at some point. So in some way, it was it was destiny uh, for you between your, <laughs> yes, your I, desires and, that's and a, uh, your expertise. Destiny or you know dumb luck. <laughs> sure, uh, sure, yeah. So I assume I assume you work today with a, a large team. ACLU is a large organization. I, I don't know how large the LGBT and HIV project is, but how many folks do you do you work with over there? So it's a really unique organization because we have – there's the national ACLU uh, with national offices and then we also have ACLU affiliates in all 50 states. And so we're really sort of privileged that when we take on a case in, you know, for example, Virginia, it's, you know, the national team and the team at the ACLU of Virginia, you know, working on the case with us. So um, my colleagues 
at the national office in the LGBT project. They're about, um, depending on how you count it, I think, uh, I should have come prepared with this answer. <laughs> I'd say um, maybe eight people. Um, and that includes some people that split their time between that project and a different one. But then, you know, there are people across the country that, you know, that, that we do the cases with who yeah. are generalists, but, um, you know, they, they, they do these cases, you know, as part of the generalist work that they do. Yeah. So what, what is your role on the team? I mean, this is where I, I show my ignorance, but what does an ACLU lawyer actually do on a day-to-day basis? What we do is we have an impact litigation model, which is, um, you know, different than many other organizations that have a direct services model. And that has some pros and some really, really, really big drawbacks. And Mm so the big drawbacks are that, you know, people's lives in a lot of situations don't fit into, um, you know, what your, you know, perfect legal impact court case. Can you say what you mean by impact court case? So, you know, love Edie Windsor, for example, um, who, you know, I was, I was on the, the team, um, at the Supreme Court that worked on her case. And, you know, she, um, uh, was the plaintiff that, uh, took down the Defense of Marriage Act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she is, you couldn't imagine, you know, a more, um, sort of, uh, capable, and inspiring spokesperson um, mm-hmm. than than her, and you couldn't imagine, you know, in addition, a spoke uh, someone more, you know, suited to um, speak to, you know, even people who have no other familiarity with LGBT folks uh, mm-hmm. beforehand. And mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of the um, iconic, you know, court cases that you think of, you know, often. Um, try to tell um, this, you know, story that is going to be most compelling uh, for the court and for the public at large in understanding this issue, understanding why it's important, understanding the people who are affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also means that you're, you are picking um, cases and clients that uh, present that issue, you know, the most cleanly. So there's, there aren't like other messy factual questions um, or, or things that get in the way of the clean legal story. And, and so not everyone's lives, you know, fit into that. And sometimes the people who like need help the most are, you know, the people who um, have, who we have the most difficulty, you know, framing into that sort of model. If you say, I'm going to get you relief, even if the best case scenario, you say, oh, this is a great issue to take to the Supreme Court. Uh, Maybe in, you know, three or four years, you'll have, (laughs) you'll, you know, you'll have, um, you know, the, the, you'll, you'll have your rights vindicated. You know, if someone is getting evicted from their apartment, um, that's in, in a month, um, you're not always in a good position to help them. So, I think that there is an element that we try to be very self-conscious of is that we're just sort of one small piece of protecting people's uh, dignity and equality and basic mm-hmm. welfare in that it is 
there's a much broader network of people in legal services organizations, public defenders, um, uh, people across the board that are much more um, uh, connected on a day-to-day basis uh, with the community that they're serving. And that's something that I, I unfortunately don't get to experience as much of. Mm-hmm. I, I only get to come in if it looks like um, uh, we get a request for help or we hear of a situation from someone who um, would potentially be a, a, a plaintiff that would establish a broad legal precedent or uh, tell a broad story that uh, reaches a whole range of people. And um, that's only, you know, it's rare for someone to um, fall into that role. So, so if um, I can paraphrase, impact is literally about thinking about the larger legal impact that a case might have down the road? Is yeah, that- yeah. So it's, you know, the model, which again has has its weaknesses, but the model is um, finding cases that establish big precedents mm-hmm. that then um, change the law and have a far-reaching effect on people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, so <laughs> taking down DOMA, establishing a national uh, freedom to marry, um, establishing that uh, civil rights laws that protect against sex discrimination include protections um, for uh, LGBT folks, including you know, Gavin Grimm, um, striking down President Trump's ban on trans people being allowed to serve in the military. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, establishing, you know, winning Windsor, winning Obergefell, establishing those rights actually do have an incredible ripple effect in the daily lives of uh, of people. Um, yeah, yeah. So at least that's the plan or or the hope. And it does certainly seem to be true here. Well, and hopefully we can talk more about those those cases in a minute. But but I mean, you, you know, not every day is is a day I assume where you feel that you're shaping uh, world historical or at least national. Uh, experience and and life and changing the law. I mean, surely there must be a certain amount of your time that's just spent doing regular office stuff that we all do, right? Or maybe not. No, 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 no. I, I think uh, a big, uh, I, I had to get on, I was encouraged to um, establish a Twitter presence a couple of years <laughs> ago, and it's been the worst thing that has <laughs> ever, ever happened to me. You could probably uh, say that about Twitter itself. In some ways, yeah. for all of us, <laughs> no, it's really it's really awful. Um, but so I, I would say a huge chunk uh, of time might be to uh, uh, you know procrastination, you know, trying to get inspired to write something, mm-hmm. uh, get inspired to you know return the the fifty emails or, <laughs> right. or phone calls that have piled up, you know, writing budget reports or or, or things like that. So there's there's plenty of um, just it's an office job, right? Yeah. Uh, so I guess that would be the if you, if you want to know what what it's like to be like a, you know an attorney at um, you know a national legal organization. It you know I would say a huge percentage of the job is just you know sitting at an office and and, <laughs> and typing on your computer or talking on the phone. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a we don't really get to, you know, be 
um, out there that much unless we are actually, you know, there, you know, on the ground meeting with clients or mm-hmm. taking depositions or mm-hmm. um, being in court. Yeah. So what, what, I mean, I do wonder, like, what's the office environment like at the ACLU though? Is it, is it buzzing with energy of, of people doing this, this important work? I'd say it depends. <laughs> uh, you know, there has been known to be energetic buzzing sure. um, at times and, you know, and especially, but, you know, a, again with that, it's often, oh, this happened in the news. We got to get this thing filed within the next 24 hours or, mm-hmm. You know, can you believe, you know, this decision that just came down and everyone reading it and trying to figure out what it means <laughs> and reading out like the best parts of it to to each other. Uh, so there's there's sort of those types of 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 moments. But if, if, if it's a matter of, you know, we're working on when on writing the perfect legal brief um, uh, for such and such court of appeals. It's not that different. That part is not that different from, um, a, you know, a law, for, law firm or a government office. You know, writing is uh, like a solitary exercise. And so there's there's a lot of sitting at desks. Yeah. So, so as someone whose entire knowledge of the legal profession comes from probably, you know, John Grisham movies, uh, not even the books, probably. But uh, as someone who, like me, is is largely ignorant of the way that the law functions um, uh, and the way that, that that attorneys like you function, um, what does that process of of, of writing a, a brief entail? It sounds like that would be an important part of of what you do. Um, what are you doing when you're writing uh, a brief? In many cases, we are um, working in areas where we. Um, are bringing similar cases um, in different courts all on a particular issue. So, you know, one of the um, uh, big issues uh, that we're fighting now, um, even increasingly now that um, we don't have to spend all our time, you know, fighting the the fifth uh, marriage ban that, mm-hmm. you know, the state has enacted, um, is uh, to make sure that uh, things like Title VII, which is a statute that protects people from employment discrimination on the basis of sex, protects uh, LGBT folks. And we keep track of all the cases on that. You know, we have, you know, we've sort of written briefs on that subject uh, many times by now. And so we're not really starting from scratch every time we, you know, have a new case on that topic. Uh, but, um, you know, a lot of the work is um, still, um, not just updating the, the legal stuff, but you got to give life to it with, um, you know, your your clients, and you know the the goal, you know, a, a judge should um, want to rule for you, or the judge should should think you're right, you know, just by reading the statement of facts um, before even getting to what the law is. Like you should be, um, you know, able to tell a story about. Um, what happened and why it's wrong and why it's illegal uh, before you even get to talking about the the law, um, yeah. or else y- you got to explain why it matters and and explain like why why it's important um, that uh, these legal principles are applied a particular way. And so that's different every time you do it, right? Your sure. your your yeah. clients are different every time, and and 
you know, and how you talk about stuff gets shaped by um, who you're representing and, and what they're mm-hmm. experiencing. So some of the job is is storytelling in that sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I was an English major. I think there are plenty of um, uh, English majors that end up being uh, lawyers, and um, I mean, there, there's actually a whole big like field on like narratology and law and mm-hmm. the, the and uh, shaping um, legal stories, but but I, I think it it is true that um, you are you are trying to you know tie together this this legal principle and this person's life um and and it's a it's a very exciting thing to do um and it's one of the i think going back to what we talked about but like impact litigation i think that's that's the model right and so yeah. you have to you have to fit the two together are you also thinking about your audience? I mean, do you write things with particular uh, judges, particular courts in mind, thinking about how they, these specific individuals have responded to things in the past, how they might respond in the future? Uh, yeah, well, there's specific, uh, you know, we, we try to strategically bring cases in front of particular, um, jur- in jurisdictions to build the law a particular way. And, and, and obviously, you know, you have to, you're writing with, um, knowing that the reader um, is going to be um, a, a judge and not yourself. But, you know, at the same time, and I think this is really, really important, is you also have an obligation to, at the same time, be true to the people's whose stories you're telling. And when I, when I, um, I, I didn't feel this sort of, um, moral sense of responsibility as acutely when I was doing uh, stuff like uh, recognition of relationships of LGBT folks because, you know, being gay myself, I I, uh, sort of, I didn't feel as much of a gap between um, me or in the stories we were telling that I, I felt, you know, I was obviously there's a gap between me and other people, but it, mm-hmm. it sort of, I felt like, um, a little more closely within the same, um, community. Yeah. And when, when I'm doing cases, um, on behalf of, uh, trans clients, which mm-hmm. now ha- the vast majority of my work right now is on that. I do, I do constantly feel a, a sense of like moral and ethical responsibility to be telling, their story on their terms, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you don't want to. It's it's important that you don't feel like, oh, well, I'm not going to. Um, I, I'm worried about how a a judge like would uh, react to something, and so I'm like not gonna um, talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there used to be a long time where. People, um, uh, you know, sort of were nervous um, uh, in 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 how much. So, for example, um, I think a, a huge issue in, in so many uh, cases are is you know increasingly is dispelling these you know myths about you know what biological sex is and mm-hmm. what people's 
bodies look like and what happens in locker rooms when people get dressed and undressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a time when people felt like, oh, we want to just like avoid talking about that because it will make the judges uncomfortable. And I I think that um, that's that I don't think that's a good strategy anymore. Um, But I think even like more important, I think that you got to be really careful when you're trying to make a decision about how someone else's life is going to be represented and how someone else's story is told. And it's just so important that, um, that the person in the driver's seat and the, and is the client and the client's story and that you are not, um, trying to like impose, um, a, a different story, um, on the client's life. So I, I feel like I'm talking like in, in broad abstracts, but um, I think that on the issue of uh, um, advocating for the rights of trans folks, there's a huge need for to have more trans attorneys um, in positions like mine mm-hmm. uh, being able to um, tell these stories on behalf of other trans people. Um, and I, I think... I have to be aware of that I am telling someone else's story and not my own when I'm doing this. There's a kind of foundational justice to that, to telling someone's story rightly and fully as you're trying to get justice for them, I assume. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny, I used to, if you look at, if you look at um, like briefs that were filed even, you know, five years ago, mm-hmm. you see some, some briefs where... Um, you know, you know, talking about, you know, you know, Mrs. X, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, works somewhere, blah, blah, blah. And right away having a footnote over the pronoun, mm-hmm. you know, and saying something like, you know, we refer to Mrs. X with female pronouns because that is her gender identity. Here are some other cases where courts refer to someone by the prop- by the right pronouns, you know almost immediately explaining and apologizing uh, for it. And I, uh, I I was working on a case where, you know, that sort of template came up and it just felt so jarring to see it there. It's like, there, you know, that's not, so, we're way past that. You know, the, the idea that you would have to sort of explain and clear your throat and apologize for just, you know, describing someone um, as who they are. And it's yeah. an, it's amazing that we, are objectively, you know, past that. I don't think any um, judge, you know, blinks an eye at that. Um, or if you have a judge that blinks an eye at that, you're, you have bigger problems. Sure. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Maybe we can actually get specific here. Um, we talked about like how you would represent a case, but we haven't really talked about exactly about how a case lands on your desk uh, in the first place. Can you tell us about something that you something that you worked on that became really important to you? Whether it's something you're you're on now or or, or something you did recently, how it arrived in your professional world in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, and so I, I have two examples that that come to mind. Um, and so I guess the first one I'll, I'll talk about, uh, Gavin Grimm, um, that, you know, so I'm the lead uh, attorney on, on that case. Gavin is, um, he's now 18, but um, at the time I met him, he was uh, 15 years old and um, he was living, well, still lives in Gloucester, uh, Virginia, which is um, uh, a, a Virginia um, area that's close to the shore. And he, um, and he's a, so at the time he's a 15 year old boy who is trans. And he, before I met him, he was, uh, there was local news coverage of him up um, at, in the middle of a school board meeting, sort of defending um, his, you know, right to be able to use the the restroom. We first heard about it um, through, I think, his family reached out to us both um, at the Virginia affiliate and at the national office for help. Um, we had... Um, what were they looking for help with at that point? So it was an interesting series of events. You know, what happened was um, he had been using the the restroom. Some Some adults in the community complained. And then there were two school board meetings where... Basically, you know, his his he was the topic of discussion Hmm. Um, and he showed up at the first school board meeting, um, said the most eloquent speech I've ever heard. Hmm. And then it was a decision was postponed uh, till the second school board meeting about a month later. So in between those two meetings is when he is when um, he contacted us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then. Is that uh, typical that families or the potential uh, clients would reach out to the ACLU directly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would say a huge, huge, huge um, percentage of cases we get are just through um, intakes of you know people who need help. Mm-hmm. And maybe they've heard of us um, through other cases. Maybe they've heard of us you know, through um, you know, legal um, brochures or know your rights materials uh, maybe someone said, oh, you should talk to the ACLU about, about this. But that's a, I would say that's a huge way that, that, you know, we hear about cases, um, is people coming to us uh, for help. And, 
And so in Gavin's case, you know, this is an issue that I think we'd all been very focused on. We'd all been very focused on, you know, helping precedent um, continue to evolve. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like a a bolt of lightning uh, to have a situation where um, what happened, you know, to to, to Gavin um, was was so... um, egregious in a way that was tailor-made for for a legal case at the time mm. um it was and it was for example here are a couple reasons first um he had been using the restroom for seven weeks with nothing happening and then they decided to kick him out so you know with those cases you had to um a huge part of uh hurdle was sort of dispelling judges fear that the sky would fall if um you let uh, boys who are transgender use the same restrooms as other boys. And here you had living proof. It had happened. There wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, they passed a pol- you know, <laughs> they passed a policy whose sole purpose was to kick him out of the bathroom. Can you imagine? You're a kid, and not only is this an issue where you know your administrators are hostile to you, but your entire school board decides to pass a policy solely because of you and to rea- in reaction to you using the bathroom. Yeah. Um, and it was also a situation where the school board had stepped in and overruled its own principal and superintendent. Um, so the everyone on the ground um, didn't think this was necessary. And then you had the school board stepping in. I mean, those, those are um, amazing examples. Uh, types of facts for starkly presenting an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're hearing someone, if someone's describing, you know, a potential intake to you, uh, you think, you know, oh, that's great. I mean, that's terrible. That's right. really, really terrible. But, sure. you know, <laughs> yeah. that's great for the, um, for the case. But then from then on, you know, we, we sort of um, uh, we talked with, Gavin about what his options were, talk about um, all the various steps we think we would go through, um, where we expected the school would then sort of back down. And, you know, at each step of the way, um, I, I was, I have to say, I was really surprised at the intransigence of this particular school board. And I still am. We're still litigating against them. But but I, I'm smiling right now because I was thinking about what I was saying a couple minutes ago about oh the narratology and storytelling <laughs> and I and and like I would say that 95 you know percent of my emotions was was um, just like sheer like rage at the way that that he was being treated um, and complete indignation um, uh, at. You know, so indignation of what the school was doing, indignation about the legal arguments that it was making. Um, and I, you know, on one hand, you know, we're separated from the community that we serve and that we're like in a office building, like writing legal briefs. On the other hand, we are like representing real people mm-hmm. and and you sort of um, get, you know, every single thing that like happens to your client in the course of, of the case, um, you know, hit, you know, you, you feel it, you feel a fraction of it, you know, not, nothing like what the client does, but yeah, there's nothing sort of, you know, abstract 
about that at all. It's like, I can't believe the outrageous thing um, that, that they just wrote um, and that they, and I can't wait to, you know, you know, write a response showing, you know, how outrageous it is. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's adrenaline and, yeah. um, that and that part's of, fun. Like, of, of righteousness, maybe even of anger, affect what it is like to do this job on a day-to-day basis or, or is that just like an occasional thing that comes and goes? I, I think that it's a, I think it affects just being a lawyer. Um, sure. So I think that, you know, if you're just a lawyer in like civil discovery, like, you know, representing one, one like business against another, you're going to have close to that same level of, uh, I think most of civil discovery is like lawyers writing nasty letters to each other <laughs> and having like, you know, hostile phone calls. And like, it's a, uh, you know, it's uh, the whole system is adversarial. Like that's the word for it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and so I think that I, I, you know, I knew that no matter what I did, I, you know, would end up feeling, uh, you know, personally invested in it. And so I didn't want to feel personally invested in something that wasn't worth feeling personally invested in. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's a huge thing that, you know, drove me to, uh, you know, doing this type of work where it's like, who cares how article like 3.4 of this, you know, contract of asset purchasing, you know, is interpreted. <laughs> Not me. I mean, well, I mean, Maybe if I you should, were on the but... case, you'd be like, it yeah. is outrageous how yeah. they are saying that, you know, including, you know, is being interpreted that way because there's no comma there. And, you know, like you would get, you would get in the weeds of it still, but um, it is, you know, it's not, you know, worth, you know, giving your, you know, your life and energy, yeah. um, at least know, not to, to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that it, it seems like, especially uh, with regard to the Gavin Grimm case, that that's interesting is that it's not like you're just suddenly stepping in to defend something before the Supreme Court. I mean, you were seeing this young man through a variety of stages of the legal process um, that that shaped his case, right? Yeah, I mean, got to see him. I mean, I did get to see him, you know, grow up or like turn from a, a you know, a, a teenage boy to a young man, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it's it's I, I I am every day just in complete awe of him. I was in complete awe of him as a fifteen year old, and I just every time I'm with him, I, I, I I'm just amazed. And it's, it's, I, I don't know how, um, how I got so lucky. I don't know how, um, you know, we all got so lucky, um, that he, that, um, uh, that, that he is who he is. Yeah. And, and it's, it's been amazing to, to, to see him grow and, you know, and it's been an emotional roller coaster, right? You lose it. You know, we lost at the district court. You win at the court of appeals. You know, then you know the Supreme Court comes in and like issues an emergency stay over the summer, um, and where they, I mean, again, to have the Supreme Court issue a, a an emergency order to stop you from using the bathroom is just 
I, I, I really will never get over that. Crazy. Yeah. Um, what yeah. happened? And, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, the case is at the Supreme Court. And I, um, you know, my, my, shortly after the Supreme Court took the case, um, the, the election in, in 2016 happened. And I, and I was, I, to everyone I saw, I was like, you know, we might all be blown up, you know, within the next four years, but God damn it, I want Gavin to be able to use the boys' restroom, you know, before we're all blown up. And, and, you know, and I, I really, it, 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 it kills me. It kills me that, you know, even once we're, we're going to win it, we are going to win the case. And it, it just kills me that they were able to keep him out of the, you know, the, the restroom mm-hmm. um, up through his graduation. Yeah. It, it, it really, I can't, I, I still um, can't get over that. And, and, you know, and this is, it, by the time Gavin was a senior, you know, he had a new, he had a birth certificate uh, reflecting that, that he's male. You know, if you, if you look at the, the, uh, I'm sure people remember the North Carolina HB2 law that was so terrible and, mm-hmm. and still lives on in, in a different form. But that was a law that required people to use restrooms uh, that match their birth certificates, right? So this is, they went even beyond that. And they were, so... There was no no reason for it except um, I don't know uh, stubbornness in, in in cruelty, and I I can't get over it. So I, I um it'll be we'll have vindication after the fact, but it's it it it's still amazing to think to think back on. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, let, let's talk about, you know, an important part of that long process that you've been involved in there, which is the time that you spend in court or possibly the time you spend preparing for court. I mean, how much of that, whether it's the Gavin Grimm case or, or others that you're working on, how much uh, of your time is is involved in actual court related uh, activities? A really small amount. Um, mm-hmm. Well, so I, when you talk about court related activities, there are different types. So there's arguing motions where you're up in front of the judge saying what the law is, and you know that is, you know that that is some people really dislike that. Um, I I really you know like it when it's especially when it's uh, you know not a, a motion about. Um, you know, whether some evident piece of evidence comes in, but just, you know, the motion on, it's called a dispositive motion. Like, is this a valid legal claim or not? Mm-hmm. You know, does this person win or not? What's the appeal? Um, and that's, you know, you're just having a conversation um, with the judge about, you know, the case and the law. And, you know, there's a ton of adrenaline there. You, you know, you lose sleep beforehand. You spend, a you know, a week beforehand, you know, being like a I mean, you used to stand out as a, as someone on the street just muttering to yourself like <laughs> um, that used to be, um, you know, c- 
conspicuous. I mean, now they think you're just um, that you're just talking on a on a Bluetooth headset, <laughs> but you know, you're, you're rehearsing to yourself. You're practicing. Yes, what you're yeah. going to argue and how you're going to argue it. Yeah. Right, and so at least you know, for me, you know, talking to yourself in the shower all the time, thinking, oh, I would phrase it this way. I'll do mm-hmm. this, and um, so that is a lot of like mental buildup, and then. Um, you're there and you have the argument and, you know, it either went terribly or it went great. And then there's a big, you know, adrenaline drop after that. That's like a, t- that's a really small uh, fraction of the, you know, what you get to do. Um, there's also depositions, which is uh, where you are, you're not in court, but you are um, in like a, an office conference room across the table from a witness mm-hmm. and you are asking questions and the witness is answering and there's someone at the edge of the table typing down, you know, everything that you're saying. And, you know, that's, that's interesting. That That's very interesting too. And it's often actually a time where, you know, you are, you know, across the table from the person you're suing, you're across the table from the person that, you know, fired your client or um, said that, you know, they couldn't um, cancel their their uh, wedding reception after they found out that uh, that your clients were gay. And, you know, you're there, you're asking questions to to um, the witness on the other side and they're answering it. And and I mean, that and that 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 also is very interesting, especially because, you know, your job you know, people always say that your job as a as a witness at a deposition isn't to, you know, volunteer information. So, you know, if someone asks you, do you know what time it is? You say, yes. Right. And you, you know, you don't go one step more and say it's 225. It's an interesting process and you're finding out information for the first time. Um, so that's all very interesting and tiring. Um, and I'd say like, you know, all that is maybe about on a typical year, I would say that is maybe 15 to 20% of uh, what you're doing. Hmm. And that, you know, there could be a year where you're just like on a case that has a ton of depositions and that's just, you know, where you spend most of your, you know, like a couple months. But I, I would say that's more rare. And in part because, you know, we are trying to pick cases where there aren't really a lot of factual disputes. Hmm. Right. Um, Because if it's a factual dispute, then the case can just sort of go away on, you know, was did this was this person really fire? Did did this person really fire someone because he was gay or did they fire this person because of, you know, all these other things in their employment, you know, record? And that's the question. You're looking for a boss who says, hell, yeah, I fired him because he was gay so that you can test whether that itself is okay. For example, I mean, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and, and you know, we have the 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 fortune or misfortune of still living in a time where people say that, sure. right? Um, and I would say I, misfortune, I, but but I'm well, glad no, you're no, no, but again, it. that's so terrible. You know, <laughs> yeah. again, that's great, that's terrible, right? Um, right, 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 right. But no, but it is actually like a, d- a difference in terms of, um, well, I don't know, I, the, I I have a spiel, I have like a little like you know speech about this where. Um, as a formal matter, um, equality for LGBT folks, you know, is so far behind that all the, all the allegedly like, you know, great rulings are really just like trying to catch, you know, LGBT folks up to, um, 
getting the same formal equality as other um, as other people, and then and then you know we'll end up being in the same trenches as everyone else, and in, in fighting like um, entrenched, institutionalized like patterns of of discrimination that are less visible. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of <laughs> uh, I I I feel like you know since the summer of 2016, um, the idea that um, that there are all sorts of discrimination that um, you know I I think I once thought. You had to, you know, do more work to unearth in that people were at least self-conscious enough to be to not be as explicit about it. Um, You know, I thought we were um, at a place where, um, you know, openly, uh, you know, racist and anti-Semitic and misogynistic things were not said, you know, not just by, you know, the president, but also, you know, by, um, you know, um, every, all other private and public actors. And I think mm-hmm. we're not quite <laughs> yeah. um, as far along in that as, as I would have hoped. Yeah, but it's a despairing um, moment in that way. But, but probably yeah, an yeah. exciting one for people doing work uh, of the kind that you are um, in that it's a moment when it's clear what a difference we have to make. Yeah, no, I, I'm depressed about it. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I uh, but we still tend to get more cases where someone's like I I you know you're fired because you're gay yeah. um, or I'm not going to give you a cake I'm not going to like ma- bake the same cake for you that I bake for everyone else because you know you're gay or I am not going to um, um, I- I'm not going to um, give your spouse um, health insurance because. Mm-hmm. Um, that would force me to recognize the legitimacy of your marriage or I have a religious objection to the simple fact that you exist as a transgender person and me, you know, having to interact with you without telling you that you are um, contrary to what I think God's vision should be is a burden on my religious beliefs that you shouldn't exist. Um, so those are fact patterns that we get mm-hmm. um, and and it it doesn't we're still a long way until we until yeah. people have to cloak that um you, you talked more about subtly. You, you talked about drawing on that outrage uh anger that frustration but you also say that it's a depressing moment that, that makes sense i mean does it it must be tough sometimes in your job to just deal with face the 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 specificity the baldness of of bigotry so often it is and i and it's um you don't get to sort of tune you know this is the the the, the a side effect of um having is, working on issues you care about is that there isn't um a separation between you know work and the rest of life so you can't just tune out the news yeah um and you know whatever jeff, jeff's terrible thing jeff sessions um has done you know it if it doesn't directly impact your work it like directly impacts like the work of um your friend right down the hall um and so there's just sort of a you sort of can't escape um all the bad things that the administration is is um, doing on a variety of fronts, whether it's you know, like 
holding um, undocumented uh, teenage uh, girls, you know, prisoner so they mm-hmm. can't have an abortion, uh, you know, or whether it's, um, um, you know, rounding up and and uh, people who have uh, been living in this country for decades. Um, so, so that's that's hard, and I think that we have. Um, so the uh, the legal rights for LGBT folks have, you know, had several low points. Um, but um, you know, the broad arc over the past twenty years has been like optimism uh, with um, Justice Kennedy providing um, a, a fifth vote for a Supreme Court majority and a feeling that things will the future will be better. Um, not worse in terms of where the law is going. And and I that that hasn't been the case for, you know, colleagues I'm working on other issues. I think that um, sort of living with what um, colleagues in the Reproductive Freedom Project have been living with, you know, for decades and decades of, you know, feeling just, you know, every day is is just trying to fighting a rear guard action. But, you know, for the first time, um we're sort of looking at another, you know, five or 10 years where the, you know, the outlook of like where the Supreme Court will be at least um, is likely to get worse with time, not better with time. Mm-hmm. And that's just a a reality to um, that we're all adjusting to. Can we talk a little about the Supreme Court? You've, you've argued Cases before the Supreme Court, yeah? No, no. So I haven't. I feel okay. like I did with Gavin's. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Gavin's. So I've been. I've been on many. Um, the team writing the legal briefs mm-hmm. on, on many cases and like you know helping prepare moots. Um, so which I is a really exciting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know I haven't been the person up there. Sure. Um, and I. Oh, that's funny. Like I sort of feel like going through the the process of trying to get ready um, in Gavin's case um, makes oh, I almost feel like I <laughs> Barmy feels like ah oh, I've um, no big deal. I've already I would have already done it, even though like I haven't actually. Yeah. But um, he but you know so that's a case where we were up at the Supreme Court, uh, but um, the lower court had ruled for us. Um, saying that we were right, Gavin's rights were violated um, because um, of a guidance document uh, that the Obama administration had issued that the court was deferring to as a reasonable interpretation of the law. And um, a few weeks before argument was supposed to happen, um, the government rescinded that guidance document. And there are news reports saying that, um, uh, you know, it was a guidance document from the Department of Education, which is run by Betsy DeVos, but that Jeff Sessions, you know, his f- first act was to force her to rescind the document. Um, and she didn't want to, uh, which is am- amazing. Uh, like, <laughs> but it, it went all the way up. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, when you're, you're in a bad, you are in a bad place when Betsy DeVos is the person in the conversation that is, you know, <laughs> ostensibly protecting, um, you know, your civil rights. That this yeah. this is this is not that's not a good terrain to be fighting on. But it apparently, according to the news reports, it went up to Trump and Trump said, you know, 
do what Jeff Sessions wants you to do or, or resign. Um, and so by pulling that document, um, it, it kicked the case out of the Supreme Court. Um, so the Supreme Court then said, sent the case back down to the lower courts saying, okay, now that that document isn't there, um, decide who's right without relying on that document. So it's not it's not a loss. It's just um, sort of kicks the legs out from under the procedural posture that got us up there. And so now we're, um, you know, back in the lower courts. Yeah. But, in, you know, so that's an ongoing case. But in, in others that you've been involved with, even if you didn't argue before the Supreme Court, uh, you've been responsible for or, or connected with some cases that that led to his huge historical decisions in the United States and thinking especially of, of Obergefell. Uh, what does that feel like to be part of the team that is making that kind of difference? It feels re- feels good. <laughs> I mean, it feels it's a, a well, it feels good and it feels terrible because you feel like you you feel like there's a connection between what you are doing and what the ultimate outcome might be, right? Oh, if we use this word instead of that word, um, that might be what makes the paragraph just persuasive enough to, you know, have, uh, you know, five Supreme Court justices rule in your favor. And so there's there's a feeling of like efficacy and that you are, you know, useful. Um, but at the same time, there's a feeling of um, it can be relaxing to feel like, oh, you know, I am not personally involved in what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, like my, my choice about whether there's a comma here or a comma there, like won't um, have any, you know, uh, effect on, you know, whether there'll be marriage equality for the entire country or not. Sure. So I, I, I'm just I'm thinking the most recent Supreme Court case like our project has had has been Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is, um, you know, the baker that wouldn't bake um, the same cake he would bake for anyone else just because um, it was uh, a same-sex couple that was getting married. And that's an issue I've I've worked on um, similar type cases. um, And it's an issue I care about a huge to a huge degree, but I wasn't on the legal team at the Supreme Court on this case. And um, <laughs> I have to say, I mean, uh, it was much more enjoyable <laughs> than being than, than actually being on the team, uh, just because it it feels like everything is heightened. Your sense of um, responsibility is heightened. Your sense of anxiety is heightened, and um, you know, just like everything's turned up to 11 and and the, the good and the bad. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was fascinating. I, I learned so much. Uh, thanks. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. Uh, this week, we also want to recommend that you check out another Slate show, Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast. Uh, On that show, Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting, from toddlers to teens to step-parenting to race relations and housing. They're not parenting experts. They're just parents figuring it out as they go uh, in public and on a weekly show. Uh, You'll learn things about uh, 
what's under Rebecca's teenage son's bed, uh, how many times you should be required to go to your child's production of Bye Bye Birdie, and more. They answer listener questions, share their own parenting triumphs and fails, and talk through parenting issues in the news. So keep an eye out at slate.com slash mom and dad, or subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting wherever you get your podcasts. Here at Working, we always welcome your thoughts about working. Uh, you can email us via working at slate.com. You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Um, we want to give a huge shout out um, for the season to um, a ton of folks uh, at Slate, I, too many to even name, um, but who helped us uh, track down guests uh, and um, think about how to shape um, what you've been listening to for the last uh, eight episodes, if, if you've been listening to the last eight episodes, which we hope you will. I also want to uh, thank uh, Jacob Liebenloft, who uh, suggested that we get in touch with Josh Block at the ACLU. This episode was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.